Good evening, everyone. Fear, loneliness, guilt, and confusion. I've no doubt that uh, every single person sitting in here this evening has experienced these at different levels and at different times. And sometimes they, they strike individually. Whereas at other times they have a tendency to all come crashing into our lives at once. And they can be temporary emotions that sort of raise their heads for a while and then quickly disappear. But often they hang around and they linger. And they seem difficult to shake and therefore they threaten to overwhelm some of us. And throw us off course or throw us into turmoil. And tonight, as we continue our Deep Cries, the Deep series, which is all about the value of praying the Psalms, where we have been rediscovering and re-engaging with this ancient yet contemporary practice of turning to individual Psalms and not only praying with them, but also praying from them. Well, tonight we come to Psalm 25. It's page 556 in the Bibles that are in the pews. And if you did have a copy of it in front of you, This evening it would be great, and if you want to share with the person beside you, that would also be really good. But in this psalm, we find the words and the prayer of someone who is wrestling with these four emotions. This is the prayer of someone who's afraid of others, afraid of what they might do to him. This is the prayer of someone who who feels isolated, who feels vulnerable who feels as if they're all alone. It's also the prayer of someone who's troubled and disturbed by sin. There's guilt. They feel that. And to top it all, this is the prayer of someone who doesn't know where to turn, doesn't know which direction to head, and doesn't know what path to take. Their head is spinning. And it probably is a fair chance that it all sounds very familiar. And as you read this refreshingly honest prayer, you sense the emotion, particularly towards the end of it. But you sense the emotion and you gain an insight, a really valuable insight into the mindset of a distressed Christian. And therefore, what we've got in Psalm 25, I want to suggest, is a prayer that resonates. Or at least it will resonate at some point with most, if not all of us. And so Psalm 25 is a prayer to echo. It's a prayer to grab hold of. It's a prayer to embrace. It's a prayer to learn and memorize. And just on that point, I think it's really interesting to discover that in its original Hebrew form, Psalm 25 is an acrostic. There are several acrostics in the Psalter. Which means, as I know many of you already know, that each successive line of the psalm begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so because the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters, Psalm 25 has 22 lines, or 22 verses, as you can see. The first one beginning with the Hebrew equivalent of the letter A, the second starting with the letter B, and so on right down to the equivalent of the letter Z in the last line in the 22nd verse. Problem is that most of us don't see or get that because of our English translations. It kind of just passes us by. But nevertheless, I 
think it's good to be made aware of it because one of the main reasons why certain psalms were written with this framework was to help people memorize it. And for me that invites and it encourages and it reminds us of the holy habit of committing specific verses or entire chapters of God's word to memory which is, as many people feel, a disappearing art. A few weeks ago, I I encouraged all of us to learn Psalm 131. Now, there was only three verses. I don't know how you got on with that. But this week, I'm going to set the bar a bit higher. And I'm going to invite you to learn Psalm 25 of all 22 verses. Why? Well, the reason is this. That when any or all of these emotions fear... Loneliness, guilt, confusion. Whenever they become a reality in your lives, you can automatically recall and recite these words, whether you're lying in your bed, staring at the ceiling, driving in your car, sitting sipping a cup of coffee, or in a busy office environment on a Monday morning. You just recite these words. Praying with and from Psalm 25 Maybe a lifeline for some people at a certain point in their lives. Maybe even right now. And so what I want to do is explore it in a little detail in the next sort of 15 minutes or so. You will notice there, if you, if you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, that this is another Psalm of David. And in terms of, of what type of Psalm it is, what genre it belongs to, it is another one of the Psalms of Lament. It is an individual lament. It is a personal complaint combined with trust. And as you read the opening couple of lines, that commitment to trust, that sense of dependence and reverence submission is right up front. Have a look at it. Now I'm reading the first verse here from the New Living Translation. It says this, O Lord, I give my life to you. I trust in you, my God. And that's that's David's starting point So before he goes on to vent his spleen, before he goes on to identify what he needs, before he tells God where he's at, he acknowledges his need of God and his need to pray. In certain translations like the ESV or the the King James, that opening phrase reads like this, probably the more familiar phrase, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In other words, God, I'm coming to you in an attitude of prayer. That's what that means. I'm here before you praying. You see, wherever else David turns, however else he intends to deal with his current emotional state of mind and circumstances, his primary reference point is God and his default position is prayer. And it's got to be ours. Primary reference point, default position. Because although we may turn to others whenever we are experiencing any of these or all of these emotions, and although we might even trust people to journey with us through these emotions and feelings, it's absolutely vital that we never forget our ultimate source of help. That we start by lifting our souls to God. By crying out to Him. David is clearly under the cosh here as we're about to discover. 
He's dealing with so much. But right at the start he says, listen, I know where I must turn. I know who I can trust. I'm struggling. I'm wondering what is going on. But my eyes and my heart are fixed firmly on God. And I'll come back to to some of this in a moment. But why is that? Why does David immediately turn to God in prayer? Well, I believe it's because he knows God intimately. And because he has confidence in God's amazing character. And that comes through time and time again in this prayer. David constantly identifies and expresses so many truths about the nature and character of his God. Just look at this with me as we scan through the Psalms. They're on the screen there. Verse 3, no one who trusts in you, God, will ever be disgraced. Verse 5, you are the God who saves me. Verse 6, you are the God of compassion and unfailing love. Verse 7, you're merciful. Verse 8, the Lord is good. Verse 8, again, the Lord does what is right. Verse 10, the Lord leads with unfailing love and faithfulness. Verse 14, the Lord is a friend. You see, in the midst of mess, David worships. David may be going through the mill, but God is still God. His circumstances have changed. They're changing all around him, but God has not changed. He is still worthy of praise. All of this remains true despite how David feels. And because all of this remains true and is true, because this is David's God and this is our God, then we can and we must pray and we can and we must trust. And so like many, if not all, of the psalms and prayers of lament, this Psalm 25 is not a dismissive, irreverent rant. It is the deep cry from the heart of a Christian about the reality of what's going on in his life. Yet, yes, he's being honest about all the tough things he's having to deal with, but his prayer is set in the context of, and it flows out of an attitude of worship. And if you forget everything else I say this evening, please remember that thought. That our prayers should be honest and packed with praise. Honest and packed with praise. Now I've sort of mentioned a lot about David's relatively dire situation in general terms. I've mentioned fear and loneliness and guilt and confusion. But let's actually look and listen to him pray so that you just don't think I'm making this up. Let's read from verse 16 again. The words are on the screen. But here, sense the emotion. Turn to me, God, and have mercy, for I am alone, and I'm in deep distress. My problems go from bad to worse. Are any of you there? Save me from them all. Feel my pain. See my trouble. Forgive all my sins. See how many enemies I have and how viciously they hate me. Protect me. Rescue my life from them. And it's all there. Or it's all out there. The psalmist David is clearly not in cruise control. He's not finding being a Christian easy. It's not all rosy in the garden. There may be mountaintop experiences ahead of him. There may be mountaintop experiences to look back on. But for now, David is in the valley. David is in a difficult place. Life is not plain sailing. Rubbish happens. It is happening and it does happen to Christians. 
And even though David does pray and he does worship, he has to deal with dark days and bleak moments. And it's so important to remember that just because someone is a Christian, just because they are a praying Christian, a worshipping Christian, they are not immune from fear and loneliness and guilt and confusion. The critical difference is that they can and they do turn to God in their distress in order to process what is going on and in order to find a way forward in it. And so one of the central quests of this prayer, and just as a side note, there are actually 18 petitions in this prayer. But the central quest is to discern, okay God, where do I go from here? This is where I'm at. This is how I feel. You are God. I am here in the place of worship. But God, please tell me, where do I go from here? Look at verse 4. Show me the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for me to follow. I'm dazed. I'm confused. I'm reeling. And now more than anything else, I need your guidance. And again, I reckon there's quite a few of us who have been here, who are there, and who probably will be there at some point in their lives. And David knows that in terms of finding direction and finding instruction regarding the way ahead, he needs to look to God. Because look at verse 8, it is God who's going to show him the proper path. According to verse 12, it is God who's going to be the one who will show him which road to choose. But what I find interesting about this prayer is that in it and through it, David also recognizes that he has a part to play. There are certain things that David needs to do. Certain decisions that he needs to take. Yes, he looks to God for guidance. He looks to God for direction. But he also accepts his part in the process of discovering the way forward. And so meshed and woven into this prayer of lament and trust are nine things that David has done, is doing, or he recognizes needs to be done. So the rest of the sermon is a nine-point sermon. (laughs) And what I want to suggest is that anyone here tonight who is seeking divine intervention or is seeking guidance in the midst of real mess should note these nine things and reflect on the role that they play in sensing a way forward. Here we go. See, David is not passive in this process. The fact he's actually praying reveals that. But David also realizes, yes, I've got further choices to make. It's not a case of me sitting back and somehow waiting for God to do everything. I need to be active. I need to cooperate with God so that I can be part of the solution to where I'm at. So here's the nine things. The first two I've already mentioned. But let me just restate them. Verse 1. This is what David says. I give my life to you. See, David hands himself over to God. Surrenders his life into God's hands. I'm no longer in the driving seat, God. I'm no longer calling the shots. I'm relinquishing control. And that is one of the essential elements of the Christian faith, that we hand the reins over to God and offer ourselves to him. 
And for some of us, we need to do that. We maybe need that to do that again because there is this real tendency to kind of want to hang on to our own lives or to take our own lives back from God. We maybe had a point in our life where we gave them over to God, but slowly but surely we've been taking them back. David starts by saying, okay, God, I just give my life over to you. And the second thing naturally follows, or at least it should, it's the latter part of verse 1 again. I trust in you, my God. And again, that's something David chooses to do. No one forces him to trust God. No one forces him, I love that image of that, no one forces him to jump. He chooses to do that. And that's not easy, especially when your world is falling apart. You see, trusting God when everything hangs together and is going along nicely is really easy. But choosing to trust when all around you is in meltdown is a different matter. David is in deep distress. But he still says, okay, I trust in you, God. Don't understand why I'm afraid, why I'm alone. I feel so guilty, so confused. But I'm going to trust you, God. That's a choice, an act of choice on our part. The third thing David does, verse 5. All day long I put my hope in you. It's an essential component of life. You lose hope and life in the present and life in the future can seem pretty bleak. And therefore, what we hope for or who we put our hope in is critical. And David has made this choice. Whatever happens, or to put it in David's terms, all day long, throughout the day, 24-7, I again am choosing to put my hope in you. Why can I do that? Why is David able to do that? Well, look at the first part of that verse. For you are the God who saves me. Therefore, all day long I put my hope in you. You're the God who saves me. And so all day long I put my hope in you. And the fourth and fifth things are found in verses 9 and 10. And they're both essential if you want to be led by God. And in these verses David identifies two qualities that are fundamental to discovering God's or discerning God's leading and directing. If David's going to find a way forward then he needs to be humble and obedient. Look at verses 9 and 10. The Lord leads the humble in doing right. The Lord leads with unfailing love and faithfulness. Who? All who keep his covenant and obey his demands. Humility and obedience. David recognizes that these are two core Christian values and virtues. And so as David prays, as he pours out his heart to God, as he laments his situation, as he laments what is going on around him, there's no hint of arrogance. There's no hint of pride. There's no sense of David throwing the head up. And deciding to do life his own way from here on in. David knows, listen, if I am going to find a way forward, I need to be humble. And if I'm going to find a way forward, I need to be obedient. So David surrenders. He trusts. He hopes. He pursues humility and obedience. Sixth thing he does, he confesses his sin. Verse 11, forgive my many, many sins. There are many other references to confession in this psalm. And David knows that unconfessed sin creates a barrier. Unconfessed sin in the life of a Christian 
create, causes dysfunction in our relationship with God. It clouds our vision. It distorts our perspective. David knows that it is virtually impossible to discern God's leading whenever sin is being entertained. Whenever sin is being left to eat away at our hearts and minds, there is virtually no chance that we will be able to sense what God is saying to us in terms of what direction to go in. And David knows that. And he knows that for a healthy, vibrant relationship with God to be his experience, then he needs to seek forgiveness. And so he prays, forgive me my many, many sins. Seventh thing he does is he recognizes that it's so important to maintain and nurture a proper fear of God. The Lord is a friend to those who fear him. Which is about, and we've covered this ground before, but it's about a healthy respect. It's about a reverential attitude. It's about having a recognition of the greatness of God, about his majesty and his holiness. And it's that mindset, it's that intentionality that we've got to guard and foster. It's not about being frightened of God. Because you'll notice that what actually the text says is the Lord is a friend to those who fear him. So it's not about carring. It's not about hiding from God and fear in that sense. It's about coming before him with respect and in reverence and in awe and discovering that he is a friend to those who fear him. And so David is there in this place praying and lamenting, but he's saying, listen, I need to retain a proper respect for God. That's why this is not an irreverent rant. The eighth thing, verse 15, my eyes are always on the Lord. Again, that's a choice. In a world of so many distractions where so many other things catch our attention and capture our gaze, David knows that a constant focus on his God is essential. For David, it would be so easy to focus on the things going on around him. To only look at his circumstances and become distracted and distraught. And so he confirms, listen, my eyes are focused elsewhere. I'm not going to dwell on how I feel. I'm not going to dwell on what is going on around me. I am going to fix my eyes on God. And the final thing that David has done in his doings found in verse 20. For in you I take refuge. David must have been so tempted to run in all sorts of different directions to seek shelter, to seek solace, to find comfort. But he decides that there really is only one place where he's going to get sanctuary. And that is in God. And this idea of finding refuge in God, it crops up in the Psalms time and time again. Many of you know that. And what it means, or or certainly this is a key part of its meaning, is that you realize that God is your only source of relief and comfort in times of trouble and distress. That's what it means to seek refuge in God. And David needed to go there and to do that, and there is no better place to run when you are distraught. And so there you have the psalm or prayer of lament. David, the original writer, is not in a good place. And he expresses that very graphically, very honestly. 
But alongside his complaint is deep praise and worship. Plus an acceptance that I have a part to play in finding my way through this. And therefore he recognizes that he needs to do nine things. He needs to surrender, trust, hope, pursue humility, obey, confess sin, fear the Lord, clarify his vision, and take refuge. And so, whenever you feel afraid, or alone, or guilty, or confused, I may encourage you to be honest with God in prayer. Set it in the context of worship. And accept that you have a part to play in finding a way forward. And so, please, pick up the challenge to learn Psalm 25 this week.